Well, let me tell you that today's message is the last episode of this season. Oh, parang Netflix, di ba? Sanay na tayo doon. So we are in a series on the book of Romans. And today's message is the last of the season. And next Sunday, there will be a new season started in the series on the book of Romans. And Pastor Peter will be sharing with us how can anyone be really sure about going to heaven? I know many of us may know the answer to that, but many people don't. Many people may have heard the answer, but don't necessarily believe it. So please make sure that we all gather together, you invite your friends and your family to hear as we finally unveil the good news in all its glory and splendor. Because so far we've been talking about bad news, right? But anyway, we cannot appreciate the good news if we don't know the bad news. So for today's message, we will be sort of transforming our worship hall into a courtroom. Is that okay with you? Any objections, Your Honor? So, well, you know, there have been many television shows and many motion pictures that were produced based on courtroom dramas. I'm sure you remember many of them. My personal favorite, I don't know if you remember this movie, <clears throat> A Few Good Men. You remember that movie? A uh, very young Tom Cruise and a not so young <laughs> Jack Nicholson. And the, the, the courtroom drama in that movie was so intense. And my favorite part is when Tom Cruise tells Jack Nicholson, I want the truth. You remember that? What was Jack Nicholson's answer? You can't handle the truth. Did I sound like him? Anyway, that's my feeble attempt at imitating him. But you know, that conversation is very meaningful. We may say we want the truth, but the question is, can we handle the truth? The wonderful thing about the, the Bible, even when it comes to bad news, somehow, somewhere there, we see the good news of the gospel. It's like Jesus himself. The Bible describes him as full of grace and truth. And even if we speak about the bad news, which we will continue to talk about today, we cannot help but see and sense and understand that there is great news behind what we hear as bad news. Today's title or today's message title is this, guilty or not guilty? What do you think the answer is? Or rather, what would you want the answer to be? Of course, we want the answer to be not guilty. But the truth is, well, we will find out what the truth is, okay? We'll explore that together. And our outline for today is this, guilty or not guilty, first we talk about the reality of a judgment day, our day in court. And then we'll talk about a couple of defenses that people normally use to help justify their entry into heaven. The first defense is, but I live a good life. The second defense is, I practice my religion. I'm a religious person. But at the end of the day, we will see how we need to throw ourselves at the mercy of the court. 
Okay, so that is going to be our message today. Guilty or not guilty? Let's find out together. Let's pick up where Pastor Peter left off last Sunday as we talk a little bit more about Judgment Day. Okay? So we'll pick up from Romans chapter 2, verse 5. And Paul writes, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. So it's talking about a day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There will be, folks, a judgment day, our day in court. And it says, God who will render to each person according to his deeds. It says, because of our stubbornness and unrepentant heart. The word stubborn here means hard. It's where we uh, get the word, um, you know, where, uh, the hardening of the arteries. That, that's the same word. And of course, unrepentant means refusing to change. So, uh, because people are stubborn, are hard-hearted, they don't want to change, it says we're storing up for ourselves the wrath of God for on that day of wrath. And on that day, it says he will render each person according to his deeds. Now, some of you might be asking and be confused, but salvation is by faith. So judgment according to his deeds, how do we reconcile that? Well, folks, in the Bible, it's very clear. Judgment will be according to our deeds or our works. But salvation is by faith, by grace through faith. Let me try and clarify that a bit more through this quotation. It is the invariable teaching of the Bible that judgment will be on the basis of works, though salvation is all of grace. Works are important. Why? Because they are the outward expression of what the person is deep down. You see, if we are truly saved by faith, it will show in the transformation of our lives. If we are not saved by faith, it will also be revealed in our works. So, in the believer, they are the expression of faith. In the unbeliever, the expression of unbelief. But just for the record, so that it's very clear to us, Let's go through a very familiar set of verses, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. These are some of my absolute favorite verses in the Bible. And it says, as many of us know, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And here very clearly it says, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Folks, a long time ago, I received what people may call a religious education, and it allowed me to gain a sense of moral superiority in my mind uh, in comparison to other people. Now, that's not my school's fault. That's my fault. That's my own pride and haughtiness in my heart. But then I realized, you know, when I heard the gospel, my salvation will never be a result of works. Why? Because no one will be able to boast. In other words, you and I will never be able to stand before the pearly gates of heaven. And when we are asked, why should, I, why should we be let in? We could never say, because I was a good person. Or maybe if I was standing next to someone, I could never say, I was a better person than that guy. Even if it were true. 
because that's not the point. That is not the basis of our salvation. But what is the role of works? It is not the means to be saved. It is the outflow. It is the evidence. And that's why in verse 10 it says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand in advance that we should walk in them. So the equation is not good works leads to salvation, but genuine salvation results in good works. Now, let's go back to what Paul was writing. We pick it up in verse 7. Remember, he's talking about that day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Again, it's not something they earned by their good deeds, but the good deeds are the evidence of the fact that they have received eternal life by faith in Jesus. Then he goes on to say, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, but obey unrighteousness, the outcome is wrath and indignation. And then Paul says the same thing. He just says it in reverse. He says, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek or the Gentile. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. How do we make sense of all this? You know, even the Apostle Peter said, sometimes the writings of Paul are not so easy to understand. So let me try and kind of put them in a table so that we can see the complete picture. We're talking here about Judgment Day. So here we have two columns or two groups, A and B or one and two. First, for those who are saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone, the evidence of their salvation is that they persevere in doing good. Are we good so far? What is their destiny? Their destiny for those who have, are saved through faith in Jesus and whose good works are the evidence of their salvation, their destiny is glory, meaning to say the, the, wonder, the wondrous environment of heaven forever. It's honor when we hear the words of Jesus. What do you want to hear Jesus tell you? Well done, good and faithful servant. And then there's peace, the absence of death and pain and sickness and sorrow. And of course, that is forever because we will experience immortality, eternal life. But then for those who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ alone, the evidence is they do not obey the truth. And the destiny is wrath, indignation, tribulation, distress. So, ladies and gentlemen, a simple question. Left or right, where do you want to be? Of course, this is where we want to be. Amen? Not here. That's why we're pursuing the question, guilty or not guilty. So let's continue. This is now our memory verse. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, 
and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Who is Paul referring to here? Remember, the audience he was addressing in his letter was composed of two major groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. We know who the Jews are. The Gentiles are basically everybody else. Now, when he says, those who have sinned without the law, he is referring to the Gentiles, the Gentiles in the audience. And of course, when he says, those who have sinned under the law, who will be judged by the law, he's talking about the Jews. So let's have a closer look at those two audiences and what is their relevance to us today? Because you might be sitting here and saying, why are we talking about Jew and Gentile? What's the application? What's the relevance to us today in this century? Okay, so we said that Paul is addressing two audiences. First, he talked about the one without the law. These are the Gentiles, or sometimes they, they refer to them as the Greek, because many of the foreigners, the non-Jews, spoke Greek at the time. But basically, these are Gentiles. He describes them as without the law. God did not entrust them with the commandments that were revealed in the Old Testament. Today, you might say, this person is the moralist. The person may think, the moralist may think he can be good without God. He can just live a good life. His basis for living a good life is his conscience. If his conscience doesn't bother him, he's okay. If his conscience bothers him, then he's not okay. His method or his basis for living a good life is, you, do you remember these four letters? How many of you remember GMRC? Pasado ba kayo doon? Good manners and right conduct. Not the Bible. So these are, those were the Gentiles back then. Today, these are the moralists, okay? And then as far as the Jews are concerned, these are the ones under the law. Today, you can say, oh, these are the religious people. These are people who have, well, you, you can say Christians, but basically people who have a, a, a religious tenet that they follow and they say they put into practice. So their defense is, I practice my religion. The defense of the moralist is, I live a good life. The defense of the religious one is, I practice my religion. Question, guilty or not guilty? Hmm, let's see. Let's look at defense number one. What's defense number one, remember? I live a good life naman eh. So let's see. Let's go back to Romans 2. Remember, he's talking about the Gentiles in his context, okay? For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves. In other words, even if they don't have the law, somehow it's as if they knew it in, based on how they are, you know, living, trying to live a good life. It says they are a law unto themselves. So how does that happen? In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. What does that mean? Well, it says their conscience their conscience. Do you remember that old soap commercial? Ako ang iyong konsyensya. You remember that? Or Jiminy Cricket and Pinocchio? 
let your conscience be your guide. But here he's talking about their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So their basis is conscience. So if we ask ourselves, can we be justified? Can our entry into heaven be rely, can it rely on our conscience, on our just living a good life? Of course not. Because even here alone, we already see the problem of conscience. Because it says, alternately, their conscience will accuse them or will defend them, meaning to say, we will not always do the right thing. There will be times when our conscience will clearly say, you did the wrong thing. And when that happens, we know we fall short of God's perfect standard. What is a conscience in the first place? The dictionary will tell you it's an inner feeling or voice viewed as acting as a guide to the rightness or wrongness of one's behavior. But more importantly, what is a conscience based on the word used in the Bible, the word that Paul used? Okay? This is what it means. It is a spiritual and moral consciousness that is a result of having been created in God's image and therefore unique to human beings. It's a precious thing that is true only for human beings. Now, I know some of you dog lovers, you think your dog has a conscience. Why do you think that? Because sometimes after your dog chews on your slippers, he comes to you with eyes like this. He really looks sorry for what he has done. But believe me, folks, this is something that's unique only to human beings. So God built in a conscience so that that conscience will alternately accuse or defend. But like we said, the problem is, well, let, let me show you this quotation. As far as the people who say, I live a good life. I follow my conscience. God will say to that individual, what did you think was right and wrong? Okay, in your mind, according to your conscience, what did you think was right and wrong? And when that person finally gives an answer, God's question then, his next question is, did you do the right and not the wrong? Which one did you do? And you and I know, sometimes we do the right thing, but other times we do the wrong thing. That's why by that standard, of course, everyone fails. Let me give you my example. At 12 years old, I taught myself to play the guitar. Okay? I'm giving you this example because it illustrates the problem of conscience. I taught myself the guitar, and I, I wanted to play the guitar with steel strings, not plastic, not nylon. And I knew that it would be painful. So what I did was I taught myself guitar using a 12-string guitar. Have you ever heard of a 12-string guitar? So obviously it has double the number of, of strings that a normal guitar has. And I wanted to do that because I wanted to build the calluses on my fingertips fast so I wouldn't feel the pain. And it worked. 
In a very short time, I had calluses so thick that I couldn't feel anything on the fingertips in my left hand. Folks, that is one problem with conscience. It can become callous. Paul talks about consciences that have been seared as with a hot iron. Why am I sharing this with you? Many of you know that before I gave my life to Jesus, one of my prime struggles was addiction to pornography. And because of my repeated exposure from the age of around eight up to my young adult life, just before I became a true follower of Jesus, I constantly and intentionally exposed myself to pornography. So it was like playing that guitar with 12 strings. And eventually, a, callous, a callousness developed in my conscience. So that even when people would say, you know what? That woman in that X-rated movie, my goodness, she's somebody's sister or she's somebody's daughter. And in my mind, who cares? Why epic? Why? Because my conscience was callous. So folks, it's really not a good way to justify, for anyone to justify himself or himself by saying, oh, I live a good life. I follow my conscience. So, defense, number one, I live a good life. Guilty or not guilty? Bad news, huh? So, we go to defense number two. I'm a religious person. I try to practice my religion. Okay, let's see. Romans chapter 2, 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed by the law. You know, the, the, the Jews were really blessed. They were truly, truly blessed to have been given and entrusted with the law of God. But you know, we might as well substitute the word Christian here in place of the term Jew because so many people on this planet, true, true followers of Jesus or professing followers of Jesus, we have been given the word of God, the gospel, his will as revealed in his word. And so Paul is now reminding his fellow Jews. Now remember, Paul was a Jew. And remember, he loved his fellow Jews so much. As a matter of fact, he said if he could only trade places with them and become unsaved so that they would be saved, he, would, he was willing to do that. But he's also, he loves them so much that he will not hold back on pointing out the truth that they need to hear. So he's saying, if you call yourself a Jew and you, you boast about having the law of God and you know his will according to his law, and then he says, and if you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, which is actually true, because the Jews were really called, you know, to be a, a light to the dark world, because from them, Jesus would come, and Jesus is the light of the world, and his followers, Jesus called the light of the world. So this is true. But Paul is now turning the tables on his fellow Jews and saying, I need to point this out to you very clearly. If you see yourself as a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, if you think you are all of these things, 
If you are at a point in your life where you are boastful and prideful because you are religiously self-righteous, I want to ask you this question. And this is where Paul goes for the jugular in his argument. He says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? By the way, remember what Jesus said? If we look at anyone with lust in our eye, we already commit adultery in our heart. Then he says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? In other words, if you claim that you are a religious person, and that is where you place your confidence in terms of your eternal destiny. Are you able to follow your religion to the letter perfectly all the time? Are you a shining example of the things that you claim to know and claim to teach? Of course, the answer is no, because we cannot perfectly obey the law of God. Do you know that many years ago, even before I became a follower of Jesus, I was a religious young man? Does it show in my mukha ba akong saint? <laughs> I don't, it's really not about the outside, folks. It's about the heart. Let me just remind you a little something about my own story again. I was a very religious young man, which was actually not common for men my age, usually in a society like ours, it's the women who are religious, if you know what I'm saying. But, you know, for me, I would come early to my office every morning, and in the privacy of my cubicle, when the lights were still off in the office, every day I would say my prayers. I would spend that time praying. And then even during the week, before the week ends, I would go and attend a church service in the middle of the week. And then on Sunday, I would go to church by myself. No one having to remind me. And I, I wouldn't stand on the outside. I'd be on the inside and participate in all of that. But as soon as the church service was over, what would I do? Do you know what this is? Do you still remember what this is? I would cross the street to the video rental shop and ask them, what's the latest triple X movie you have? And I'd take it home. And for me, that was normal. So folks, there is really no confidence when if a person simply claims, I'm a religious person or I practice my religion. And he's Paul, Paul wrote in verse 23, You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. You know, these words should strike fear in the heart of even of professing, especially of professing Christians. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles 
because of you. One of the saddest things that we hear at times is the, is the story or the feedback of young people, of children, about their parents who profess to be Christians. But sometimes the children will say, my parents say they're Christian. They come to church service. They even read the Bible. But we don't see Christianity in their lives. And there are many young people, many children who struggle with that issue silently and they suffer it in their homes today. The, the parents are fighting. The husband doesn't love the wife. The wife does not submit to the husband. They verbally abuse their children. The, the, the parents overindulge in their career so that there's no time and attention left for the children. So this is a very sad story which plays out in so many families today of parents who profess to be Christians. And I think that's a perfect but very sad example of what Paul says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Let me read to you another quotation from Ray Steadman. He says, I have often thought it is amazing how the people who keep close records on how many they win to Christ never keep any records on how many they drive away. And the name of God is blasphemed because of that. So folks, you and I really need to be careful that if we are indeed true followers of Jesus, we need to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, remembering that our salvation is by faith alone. And we could never boastfully come before God and say, but I'm following the Bible. And that would be the basis of our eternal destiny with Him. So folks, when it comes to defense number two, I practice my religion. Guilty or not guilty? Guilty pa rin. Paano na tayo? But you know what? Paul is not done yet. He really wants to anticipate all of the possible counter-arguments. And so, in these next verses, he goes for something that truly means so much to every Jew. And that is the issue of circumcision. This is what he said. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. You see, folks, circumcision was very special to the Jews. It was commanded by God. It was the ceremony that ushered them into their covenant relationship with God. It is what set them apart from the rest of the world. But Paul is saying, well, let's see what he has to say. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, meaning if you don't obey it, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Okay, let's see what more he has to say. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, 
Will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? Wow. What is Paul saying here? Let's try and digest this together. Basically, he's saying, of course, circumcision is important. We all understand that as fellow Jews, right? But he's saying, if you are simply focused on the outward act of circumcision, you are missing the point. Because even in the Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy, God said he will circumcise the hearts of his people. The outward ceremony is only a symbol of an inward transformation that needs to take place and can only take place in a personal relationship with God. And Paul is saying, if all you're focused on is the outward ceremony, then, and then you disobey the law, then what, what for? It's as if you were never circumcised to begin with. Mabuti pa yung, I'll say it in English, the uncircumcised who keeps the law because he is more of a Jew than you are. Now, how do we put that into today's context? Maybe the closest we can come is baptism. Baptism is commanded in the New Testament, like circumcision was in the Old. Baptism is important. And by the way, if you ask me, one of the most meaningful ceremonies that we have in CCF is baptism. Many times I cry when I watch people being baptized. We will have baptism very soon, July 16, I think. You can check the our website. But many times when I see people being baptized, I cry. When I hear them saying, I, I renounce the works of Satan, I confess Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and then they go down into the water, and depending on how sinful their life was, we hold them down longer or shorter. <laughs> Just joking. And then they come up and everybody sings, I have decided to follow Jesus. But baptism is an outward expression of an inward change. A life, an old life that has died with Christ and a new life, just like we sang earlier, a new life that has come because of Christ. Is it possible that there are people who get baptized for the wrong reason? Yes or yes? Unfortunately, yes. Some, whatever church it may be, they get baptized because their friend is being baptized, because they think it will bring them to heaven, because they think, oh, I'll be a member of this church if I be baptized. So Paul is saying, you know, if we focus on the outward, forget it. Because it's really all about an inward change. Salvation is by faith, and transformation follows that salvation that is by faith. And then he goes on to say, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, <clears throat> nor is circumcision that which is outward, <clears throat> excuse me, in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. What does that mean? Paul is just reminding us, all of us, what you and I need is an inward transformation. He says, a Jew is one who is one inwardly. A true Christian is one who has experienced the inward touch of God. And how do we know that that has happened? Well, it's a change of the heart 
It is a work of the Holy Spirit, not of our own doing. And it changes our perspective in life so that our praise is not from men. We no longer seek worldly ambition. We no longer seek the limelight or the accolades of the world, but we seek the praise of God, meaning to say our whole life is about pleasing our Savior and our Lord. And so he says, that's how he ends Romans chapter 2. But we'll be moving into Romans chapter 3 just a little bit. Is that okay with you? Because Paul is not done yet. He's anticipating all of the possible counter-arguments to the gospel. And he is, he, this is what he says in the first few verses of Romans chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles, the truth of God. What then, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What is Paul saying here? He's simply saying that, yes, God has revealed, in our case, his gospel to the world. It's no longer a secret. It's no longer a mystery. It's, it's a mystery revealed. But some people will believe, some people will not. And even if people, some people will not believe, it does not nullify the faithfulness of God. In other words, God holds us responsible for the decision you and I make whether to believe his gospel or not. It is not God's fault when people do not believe the gospel. Is that clear? And then he goes on to say, again, these are, Paul is anticipating these crazy counter-arguments. Okay, he's saying, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates, which means commends or establishes the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? Then he says, I am speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? Here Paul is saying, perhaps some of you are thinking of this argument. My sinfulness actually establishes the fact that God is holy. My unrighteousness establishes the fact that God is a righteous God. So is, is, is he not now unfair for judging me since my unrighteousness actually validates the fact that he is a righteous God? So again, Paul is saying this is a crazy argument. That's why he's saying I am speaking in human terms. But no matter what crazy counter-argument people may have, it will always fail. Then he says, but if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. <clears throat> Their condemnation is just. Meaning to say, if through my dishonest life, I actually am making God look good by contrast, when people see my sinfulness, it actually will glorify God because they realize how holy God is. Why should still he inflict judgment on me as a sinner? 
So Paul is making all of these crazy arguments just so that he can anticipate them and silence them once and for all. But folks, remember, our question for today is, guilty or not guilty? Well, apart from faith in Jesus, the verdict is their condemnation is just. We are guilty. I'd like to call to this stand, parang korte talaga, no? Our sister attorney, Rachel. Rachel, would you come and share your life with us? Because her life, like many other lives, illustrate how many people are deluded into thinking that if I follow my conscience, I'm, I live a good life, I practice my religion, I should be accepted into heaven. But actually, that is a very poor and sad conclusion. So please welcome our sister attorney, Rachel. Growing up, I attached my self-worth to my achievements and reputation as the ideal student and daughter with an unconscious belief that unless I was successful in everything I did, my parents would not love me, nor would I love myself. I was showered with affirmation for being a religious, dutiful daughter who had a level head and faced a bright future. Slowly, the knowledge that I had grown up properly and that I was an example to follow by other people became a source of pride and self-righteousness. By the time I entered college, I saw myself as a successful, rule-abiding citizen and daughter who could get anything I wanted as long as I worked hard enough and did everything by the book. I looked down on friends, classmates, and anyone else who would struggle in life, in class, or have difficulties in their relationships with their families or peers. To me, they fell short of what a person should be, and I would often lecture my friends about how they should live their lives, basically like me. Towards the end of my first year of college, all my most valued possessions got swindled. During this time, my college friends and several classmates confronted me separately, telling me that they had grown to dislike me because of my judgmental, harsh, and self-righteous attitude. These back-to-back -back incidents caused me to fall into depression as I became embarrassed about myself. Around 2008, my family began to attend Christ's Commission Fellowship and an Elevate camp was about to take place. Without any questions, my parents agreed to let me attend the four-day college retreat. I questioned why God would allow these things to happen when I had done everything according to the rules and I needed answers. I wanted to find God, and where else was the best way to start looking than in a church retreat? At the retreat, the speaker spoke about the father's love through the story of the prodigal son and explained how our sinful nature is our biggest problem. Romans 2, 8-9 says, But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. 
there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. In that story, I was the sinner and prodigal child. I had spent my whole life focused on myself, my reputation, my plans, my possessions, and everything in my life that I thought would bring me happiness. I found myself in tears as I realized that I was far from being the perfect daughter and friend that I believed I was. Knowing the truth, I finally understood who I was. I was a sinner. Even if I lived life by the rules, met the expectations of my parents and of society, there was nothing I could do to win God's approval or be entitled to His blessings. That very night, by faith, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. At the end of that camp, I decided to get myself baptized and commit to following Jesus for the rest of my life. The many years I have spent following Jesus have not been easy, as God kept asking me to give up one thing after the next. More of Him, less of me. Dedicate my life to Jesus and let Him take the lead in my life. As a student, God also asked me to give up building my resume by serving in the campus ministry as a student volunteer. God then asked me to give up my dream of a simple, uncomplicated 8-to-5 job, become a lawyer, and work for a growing law firm. Just when I thought God could not ask anything else from me, He did. In the end of 2021, just as I was rising within the ranks and building my name as a legal professional, God asked me to leave our law firm and work full-time for CCF's legal department. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Last April 19, 2022, I celebrated my 14th birthday as a follower of Jesus Christ. Through all these years, God blessed me with his peace, joy, and contentment as following his will became my priority. The overflow from academic excellence, commendations, or the regard and admiration from people are his sweet bonuses. I was also privileged to mentor younger lawyers and bless my bosses by modeling Christ-likeness in the workplace during the time God called me to work in a law firm. I am also being discipled by a couple who help keep me aligned to God's priorities and am currently discipling a group of women who have the heart and desire to dedicate their lives to the Lord wherever they are in the marketplace. Despite my past as a self-absorbed and judgmental person, God allowed me to restore my friendships with my friends from university, and He has allowed me to gain new friends, brothers, and sisters in Christ who have spurred me to pursue Christ-likeness, and who remind me that my value is not in the work of my hands, but in my identity in Jesus. 
I am Rachel Ann Gutierrez, once defined by the world, now finding my value in the sacrifice of Jesus and the privileged servant of the Almighty God. To God be all the glory and praise. Praise God. Thank you, Attorney. Please stay as we pray for you. So, Attorney, apart from Christ, guilty or not guilty? Guilty. Guilty. <laughs> Totoo talaga po. We have no hope apart from him. Shall we pray for our wonderful sister, Attorney Rachel? Shall we raise our hand of blessing towards her? Father God, thank you so much for uh, just a wonderful example of your grace, of how we are so deluded by thinking that we, by living in, in our puny strength, what we think is a good life, or following a certain set of rules, how we could uh, even think of standing before you and expect that we should be let into the gates of heaven one day. Lord, thank you for showing us through our sister Rachel's example that indeed your grace is super abundant and we need your grace in our lives. So Father, we pray your blessing upon her. Thank you for the, for the obedient spirit that you've put within her. Thank you for how you're using her at the moment here in CCF. And I pray, Lord, that you, are, you will just allow her to grow in her love for you so that she can be an even more effective mentor and servant for the young ladies you've entrusted to her. God, we commit her to you. Protect her from the evil one. Protect her from pride. And above all, just bless the work of her hands that her, even the motives of her heart, Lord, will be pleasing in your sight always. We thank you for her in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen and amen. Thank you, attorney. So, as we close, if the verdict is guilty, our only recourse is to throw ourselves to the mercy of the court. What do I mean? This is our last verse for this morning. Romans 3, 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, meaning to say Jews, Gentiles, meaning to say all people, without exception, are all under sin. And therefore, the verdict really is guilty. We have to throw ourselves at the mercy of the court. You know, how can we get out of this dilemma of ours? Let's go to Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 read, When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. So folks, you and I have no choice but to fall down and plead for the mercy of the court. It says, he saved us by his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. You know the word regeneration in the original language? You know what it means? Literally, it means again Genesis. Again Genesis. It's a fresh new start. And renewing means it's a total overhaul. It's not just a small improvement. But where does our journey into experiencing this regeneration and renewing begin? How did God set this into motion to begin with? Well, it happened 2,000 years ago. 
in a, in a courtroom, something like a courtroom. And let me read this to you from Matthew 27, verse 26. It says, Then Pilate released Barabbas for them. Who was Barabbas? Barabbas was a sinner, condemned, convicted, confirmed, rebel, murderer. But then it says, Pilate released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed Jesus over to be crucified. Barabbas was set free. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus took the sin of Barabbas with him to the cross in the same way that he took your sin and my sin on that cross. Because as Paul wrote elsewhere, he made him, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. As we heard last week, the full wrath of God against sin was vented on Jesus. He became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Folks, it is in Jesus and in Jesus alone. When we are in him, when we put our faith and trust in him as our savior, that you and I will ever hear the verdict, not guilty. Praise God for Jesus. When my wife was hospitalized last year, we were on the phone. And I didn't realize that on that phone call that was so brief, I would hear the last four words I would ever hear from her mouth. And the, the last four words were, I'm ready to go. Why was, she be, why was she able to say that? I'm ready to go. It's not just because she was tired of the, the, you know, what she was experiencing in the hospital. She said, I'm ready to go because she knows, she knew that in Jesus, she has been justified. She has been declared not guilty. So when you put your faith in Jesus, when that day comes, you and I can also say, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to meet the one by whose name I have been justified. And in his glorious presence, I will be forever. What's the application to us today as we end? If you are a follower of Jesus, be humble. Do not look down on others. Remember, you are saved only by grace. Also, tell others about Jesus. Pray, care, and share. But if you are not yet a true follower of Jesus, stop making excuses. Stop relying on your morals or your religion for salvation and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Shall we bow our heads together?
that second application, if that speaks to you, because you would know in your heart whether or not you are a true follower of Jesus, or are you just trying to live a good moral life or trying to follow a set of religious rules. If you are not a true follower of Jesus, you have not put your faith in Him alone for your salvation, then this is the reason why you're here today. Open your heart to Him. Stop making excuses. Stop relying on yourself. Open your heart and say, Lord Jesus, today I give myself to you. I realize that I am guilty of sin and there's no escaping it. But Lord, I realize that you took my place. You paid for my sin. You took the wrath of my sin upon yourself. So Lord Jesus, today I give you all of me as I am. I receive you and I believe in you. Will you start that transforming work in my life? so that I will follow you all of my earthly days. And when the last of those earthly days comes, Lord Jesus, because I am righteous in you, because in you I am declared not guilty, I can also say I'm ready to go. To you be all glory, honor, and praise forever and ever, Lord Jesus. And the echo of all of your people said, Amen and amen. God bless us, everyone.